My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. called two meetings and we had really enthusiastic turnout of probably 40 plus people between the two meetings, all of whom thought this was a great idea, that we should have an organization that brought together anyone interested in workers' history in Toronto. And the result of that was a series of programs that we set in place starting that fall in 2016 and more or less have continued and been embellished since. That's the voice of Craig Heron. He, Holly Kirkconnell, and David Kidd are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. A number of episodes of this show over the years have touched on the idea that the history that most of us have the opportunity to learn has little to say about the lives of ordinary people and about the struggles through which we have collectively shaped the world. But what can be done about that? How, for instance, can working-class people, meaning working-class people of all genders, racial backgrounds, sexualities, and abilities, learn about working-class history and about the struggles of working-class people of earlier generations? Today's guests are part of an initiative that is attempting to provide at least one kind of answer to that question. Craig Heron is a retired history and labor studies professor from York University in Toronto, and he's also been very involved in doing public history related to workers. David Kidd, also retired, was an elected leader in the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, as well as an activist in low-income communities. And Holly Kirkconnell was active for many years in the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, or OPSU, and as a delegate to the Toronto and York District Labour Council. All three are involved in the Toronto Workers' History Project. Back in 2016, in the lead-up to the 145th anniversary of the Labour Council in Toronto, someone gave Heron a call asking for photographs that they could use as part of a commemoration. He obliged, of course, but it got him thinking. It just didn't seem right that the only way to access such very basic elements of the heritage of working-class people in Toronto required being part of the right informal relationship networks and knowing who to ask. So not long after, he and Kidd sat down and had a conversation, and decided to see if there was interest in a collective project focused on working-class history. They called two public meetings to discuss the possibility, got an enthusiastic response, and spent that summer workshopping specific ideas before launching that fall. The goal of the Toronto Workers' History Project has been to both coordinate existing efforts and spark new work related to the heritage of working-class people in Toronto. Again, understood as expansively as possible and not limited to the history of that subset of people who happened to carry union cards. The core of the group's educational work has been its monthly meetings. Each one focuses on a specific topic. They've often involved bringing together someone with relevant historical training or expertise, and someone involved in related activist work in the present. Topics have included things like the history of black teachers in Ontario, the history of the Kensington Market, the struggle for childcare in Ontario, struggles by hotel workers and taxi drivers in the city, the Toronto Purchase and local Indigenous history, workers and sport, the Metro Days of Action in the 1990s, and much more. 
Another important facet of the group's educational work has been creating and performing original theater pieces. They've done two or three most years, usually thematically related to and performed as part of a monthly meeting. Earlier in May, they put on their first standalone production focused on the radical housewives movement in Toronto in the 1930s and 40s. They also have a regular book club, they've done walking tours, they created a traveling exhibit, and some members were very involved in the many commemorations of the Toronto Labour Council's 150th anniversary last year. As well, they've done some primary preservation work. Though they have no space and do not have the resources to do the archiving themselves, they have given advice and support to unions and other organizations looking to find ways to preserve their older records. And perhaps most importantly, they've engaged in two oral history projects, recording people's stories. The first was a small project in the group's earlier years, focused specifically on immigrant working-class activists, and the second is ongoing, making use of the turn to video calls during the pandemic to capture the stories of a wide range of older working-class leaders and activists in Toronto. I speak with Heron, Kirkconnell, and Kidd about the Toronto Workers' History Project. I'm Craig Heron. I am a retired history professor from York University, where I taught for a very long time in the history department and in the labor studies program. Beyond that, I was involved in a number of public history things to do with workers' history, probably most prominently the Workers' Arts and Heritage Centre in Hamilton, which I was on the board of for many years, and many other connections of that sort. My name is David Kidd. I'm retired. I was an elected leader with the Public Sector Union in Canada, CP. And then I've also been a community activist in low-income communities in Toronto for many years as well. And I'm active with the Toronto Workers' History Project in a number of ways. I'm Holly Kirkconnell. I was an active union member for four decades or more. I'm still an OPSU member. I spent 32 years working at a small community agency called Times Change Women's Employment Service. I was also active for about 25 years as a delegate to the Labour Council. We started in spring of 2016. David and I had sat down and had a chat about the need for something to pull together labour heritage, workers' heritage in Toronto in a way that would coordinate efforts more than anything that had been happening at that point. The usual story I tell is that somebody called me a couple of months before that to ask for photographs for 145th anniversary of the Labour Council. And I said, this has got to change. We've got to have something more coherent and more ongoing. So David and I called two meetings. And we had really enthusiastic turnout of probably 40 plus people between the two meetings, all of whom thought this was a great idea, that we should have an organization that brought together anyone interested in workers' history in Toronto. They were sent off to do a summer of workshopping to figure out what kinds of things we should do. And the result of that was a series of programs that we set in place starting that fall in 2016 and more or less have continued and been embellished since. The main thing we do once a month is hold a meeting, which until the pandemic hit was held in the Steelworkers Hall on Cecil Street in Toronto. It would draw in people who had done research on certain aspects of Toronto workers' history or people who had been involved in that history. And quite often we combine those and also with an emphasis on the contemporary relevance. So quite often it would be someone with historical training or historical expertise alongside someone who was involved in a similar kind of activist project now to sort of bring those things into focus. The turnouts have varied from 25 to 150 and we had the crisis that everyone faced with the corona challenge. And after simply stopping meetings for a while, in the fall of 2020, we decided to go onto Zoom. And those meetings have turned out to be remarkably successful. 
the one we had on Tuesday night had 70 people turn up for it. So it's been quite an interesting process of keeping that meeting momentum. And those meetings have also drawn some proposals from people who were active, say, in the 1970s or 80s, who wanted to bring together some of the activists of that period to talk about their struggles, whether it was in support of South African liberation or the struggle against the coup in Argentina or any of those. There were a number of those kinds of things. But we've also had someone who's just written a book on the history of black teachers in Ontario come and talk to us last year. So that's sort of the main project. But alongside that, we have a book club. We have an oral history project with older labor leaders. We have a theater group that is now working on its seventh production. And these used to be, when they started out being maybe 20 to 30 minute plays that would be at the beginning of one of our monthly meetings, but they've now blossomed into something larger. We had an archives committee that did some work to give people resources to know what to do with their records. And we had an online workshop about a year ago. I forgot, we have a traveling exhibition that we produced in the first two years as well, which is excellent. And you and Frank were pretty key to the 150th anniversary of Toronto and York Region Labor Council, too. Yeah. And I probably should have emphasized more at the beginning, the kinds of history that we're interested in is not simply people who happen to have a union card in their pockets, because those are, first of all, most likely white men for a large part of the period, and also a minority of the working class population for long stretches of time. So we are interested in the entire experience, organized and unorganized, all genders, races, ethnicities. It's a full and comprehensive look at working class experience. So it sounds from what you've said that from the start, this work has resonated with a certain layer of people. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the project, what's your sense of what's made people enthusiastic about it? I think it's a variety of things. I mean, a lot of people live and work their lives engaged, particularly a number of us where you could hear from the quick bios that we were passionate in the labor movement, but we also were engaged with working class communities in our city. And typically what happens is that kind of history is not always portrayed. Generally, histories of cities are generally those of the rich and so forth. And people who are like us, passionate about that world, they've come out to these things because we've covered a variety of aspects of working class organization and community. It's also enticed different people to come to different sessions. Also, too, just a different way of doing history. I mean, you know, it's an interesting time. The bigger interest in historical fiction these days. There's many more dramatic presentations in film or in TV. But the uniqueness that we provide is it is also about our hometown, our city, right? And working class history in Toronto doesn't always get its due, but we've helped to contribute to that. The other thing we've done is work with some other organizations that share our general concern for social justice who may or may not have as much historical interest. We started out early on having a session with the Portuguese Canadian History Project. We've done something with Japanese Canadians. There are a number of groups that are active that we collaborated with to create sessions. And as David said, it creates new audiences every time, some of whom become residual to come back again and again. But we found it really interesting to reach out in different directions, depending on the issue or the topic that we've chosen to take up. One of the biggest ones we had was, I think we had 150 for the Kensington Market History which was very nearby to the Steelworkers Hall. And they were generally a crowd of people that we hadn't seen at other meetings on other topics. And we had a similar large turnout when we had a session on Indigenous history about the Toronto Purchase, which got about 150 people out as well. 
And when we had the last play we had staged, which was the fall before the pandemic, which was about Emma Goldman's last year in Toronto, we had 150 people out for that. And again, faces that we'd never seen there before. It's a very dynamic movement. It's a sort of cultural and political movement that's taken shape. And it has, I think, found a lot of credibility. We've had some fairly substantial donations from unions to help us go along, but we have no building, we have no paid staff, so we don't have a lot of expenses, and it's entirely volunteer-driven. Many of us are retired. That makes it easier. Talk more about the practical side of getting the project up and running and keeping it going. The first step was to reach out to as many networks as we could for those first meetings. David and I had different networks that we could access. Mine was more academic. David was much more familiar with those in the labor movement. So the people who showed up were the kinds of people who've been involved in a variety of activities. We had librarians and teachers, and we had retired union people. We had people who were still on union staff. We had some historians. And there was great enthusiasm in those first couple of meetings. So when we said, let's spend the next few months working out what this organization should do, and we set up working groups for each of those topics, there was no difficulty getting them up and going. So by the fall, we sort of had a preliminary agenda of how to proceed. We elected an executive. And the initial executive was fascinating. But I'd say a third of the people of the nine or 10 of us on the executive were under 30. Half the group were people of color. It was a real sign of having tapped into something quite vital. And it's still that way. We don't have any difficulty getting people to show up for what we need to get done. And last year, we'd had a small oral history project. We decided to open it up a great deal more. And overnight, we had 20 volunteers who wanted to be interviewers. You asked about the practicalities of it, but that does mean that I retired a year after we founded the organization. So I've had a fair amount of time to put into this and the coordinating work often falls to me. But there are people who take enormous responsibilities who have full-time jobs. Frank Saptel, who handles our communications, I don't know how he sleeps with all the things he takes on, but he's (laughs) always got us well up and running on every front, including making sure the Zoom meetings work as well as they do. And, you know, David has taken on a lot as well. And, And it's just, I think, the really good group of people who came together. You know, we have our monthly meetings. We have subcommittees that work on various aspects. Oh, I, did, I didn't mention, we actually had a walking tour committee as well that stopped meeting when the pandemic started, but we were moving towards bicycling and driving tours as the next step. That was a group of people who were not centrally involved, but were quite interested because they'd been running walking tours for a number of years and had a lot of experience in it. It's funny, the pandemic has been a mixed bag, but being able to present the monthly educationals on a Zoom component really made a difference not only for people being able to be in different locations, but even there were those that were reluctant sometimes to come out on a typical wintry night. The thing I'll put in as a challenge, though, Craig is correct that at the beginning we had a number of incredibly passionate young people involved, but it is a tougher demographic to maintain engagement. Some of that is the external forces. You know, if they're involved at all in the school system, it's gone through its own series of crises over the pandemic. But it's interesting how the issue of history, some of us, as we've gotten older, we've got to understand that the group who's often the demographic that gravitates to it easily is people who have been through the experience themselves and want to reflect on it, where a lot of younger people are still living it. That's a pattern that every heritage organization has noticed, that the hardest people to recruit are young adults who may at that stage not think that history is that important, but also are starting their new jobs, putting together families, buying houses, and building a life at that point that's taking a lot of their energy. 
And if they're activists, probably involved in far too much for the time they can devote to it. Whereas you get people over 60 and they're not only more likely to have time, but they're also more likely to say, you know, it's time to reflect back on what we did and what it all meant. So I'd say probably two thirds of the people who participate actively in our organization are over 60. So it sounds like one way to divide what the group does is into work preserving the histories of workers in Toronto, like through the oral histories and the archival support work, and educational activities designed to circulate and popularize historical knowledge. Go into a bit more detail about the former, the preservation work. Yes, I think that's exactly right, that division you described. The educational side is probably what gets most of our attention, but the gathering of resources Because we don't have a building, we don't have money, we can't go to someone and say, you've got a lot of nice records, we'll take them for you. We can, however, help people find a good archival home for their stuff. We've had less success engaging unions and progressive organizations about preserving their records. That seems to be a low priority when unions have too many other things on their minds these days, understandably. But with the oral history stuff, the first project deliberately set out to do interviews with immigrant activists in the labor movement in Toronto, labor movement, broadly speaking. So we ended up doing about eight, I think, which are all nicely videotaped, and they're slowly being edited into something that can be used. And they're quite powerful. These are people who had really important stories to tell that are being preserved in a way that can actually be used and accessed by a lot of people when we finally got them ready. The second oral history project, which started about a year and a half ago, is more focused on a broad catchment of labor leaders of all kinds. It was initially a feeling that everyone was getting comfortable with Zoom. Why couldn't we use the Zoom moment that we were all stuck in to interview people through Zoom? And it turned out to be quite true that lots of elderly people had gotten used to talking to their grandkids on Zoom and that wasn't that difficult to set up an interview with them. So we now have, I think, in total, something like 30 interviews of people from various backgrounds in the labor movement. We got John Cartwright, who's just retired after 20 years as president of the Labor Council, and Judy Rebeck, who's very active on various issues around women, and so on. These are, at the moment, more like raw materials. We still have to work up a bit. They're all to be accessible to the public, and they'll be available on our website in the near future. And that's an ongoing process. There's still interviews going on. I think that's an important way to gather in memories before they're lost and get them from people who are aging quickly and whose ability to recount those memories is going to start to fade pretty soon. You were able to recruit a number of younger people who volunteered to participate. Now, when we do the questions, it's two of us asking the person being interviewed about the history, and it makes a difference to have people from different vantage points do the interview because you're getting a different reflection and a different point of view as you interview it. So it is one of our more exciting works in progress, the oral history project. And on the educational side, maybe go into a bit more detail about the theater pieces. The theater group, I guess it was April of 2017 when we had our first meeting. It was a committee that people could join. I was one of them. We started out reading some old kind of classical left-wing plays. In some ways, after a while, we were a bit lost, I would say, in terms of where we could go. But Craig approached us and said, this idea about creating a play or a short theater piece connected to the monthly meeting topic that we could maybe do two or three times a year. 
that was a great impetus. So we started creating our own plays, and Craig was particularly and still is very important in that development of the plays and the history. And quite a number of people in their retirement have gotten involved in theater things. And the group grew, and we started performing these plays as an adjunct to the panels. The first one was on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. There was one on the creation of the OVA Women's Committee and the Days of Action in Toronto, Child Labour, Toronto 1919, what was going on in 1919 in Toronto. As Craig said, Emma's last visit, Emma Goldman, and the Radical Housewives. That's about the Toronto Housewives Consumers Association in the 30s and 40s who were fighting against high prices and other costs of living. So it's a very lively group. And this particular play we're working on is the first time it's not going to be with a panel. It's a standalone play. They've gotten well-received. I think they add to the monthly meetings. I've heard some members say, well, I always come out when there's going to be a theater piece involved. So it's another way of conveying information about the histories. What's interesting about theater is that it's a way of doing history in an entirely different way. You're not writing something for people to read. They are listening and watching, and everything has to be coming out of the mouths or the actions of the people on the stage. And for someone who spent 30, 40 years writing scholarly history and popular history, it's a new challenge. It's a very interesting challenge. And I think it's a wonderful way to communicate historical understandings and get people engaged. One of the things that we've done from the beginning is trying to integrate the theatrical performance so that the audience becomes part of the experience. So the very first one, which was a fictitious meeting about the Russian Revolution in Toronto in 1917, we had actors getting up out of the audience to speak and actors in the audience applauding the speakers at the front so that the audience felt they were in this meeting in 1917. That's been the kind of hallmark of all our plays since. At some point, the audience will be in a meeting that's being run from the front of the room and people jumping up out of the audience and so on. But it's a really interesting and engaging way for us on the production side of the play, but I think also for the people who want to appreciate history in a different way. Based on doing this work over the last six years, what would you say are the key things that Torontonians need to know about working class history in the city, but don't? There's been a lot of pretty amazing history that's already been done on Toronto in a number of different ways of working class history. But it's almost like it's just scratched the surface. And, you know, we're doing our bit to open those doors and sort of get a magnifying glass and a lens on much more. There's a lot of unions that have not dug deep. I mean, they're usually in the business of representing their members, and that preoccupies them, particularly during something like the pandemic. But to actually, it can assist their members in having confidence in their union and to know a little about the history, too. In terms of your question, though, I do think that you go back to a lot of the common narratives of Toronto's history and industrialization in Toronto and other aspects of the economic development were usually focused in on the history of the people who own the means of production, not necessarily the people doing the work. We have a city that was built, uh, the actual construction is not always appreciated that our city literally was built by a lot of the immigrants who came into our city. It's the same for the carrying the parents workers in our community are basically also a combination of people who have been for a while, but also brand new immigrants who that's how they're recruited to come. So I just do think there is so much to reveal 
But there's also different new ways of seeing, too, which I think makes a difference. I learned this a bit in my own union when I was trying to get younger activists interested in looking back a bit. Because you really, as Martin Luther King Jr. said many years ago, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've come from. The list is so long of things that we don't know. This past year, working with the Labor Council on the 150th anniversary was I mean, I'd sort of known it, but when I had to put together a short reading list that could go online on the special website that was set up of books on workers' history in Toronto, it was a very short list. There are actually more novels than there are historical works. There are a few things tucked away in unpublished theses and academic articles that the mass of the population won't find very easily. But there's just so much to understand about what the working class experience was as it evolved through the phases of the city's development. We don't know very much, for example, about Toronto in the 1940s. And you can't pull a book off the shelf very easily and find out. And the rise of white-collar work and of public sector work has been touched only tangentially in most cases. The rise and fall of, say, the meatpacking industry, which was one of the biggest industries in Toronto, hardly anything written about that. But increasingly, we're also aware of how people of color in particular have not been well served by the historical work that's been done. So we feel like this is a project that's got years and years of work ahead of it. And it may not be us that will still be doing it, but there's lots to be done in bringing that history back. What do you see as the importance for the labor movement and other social movements today of this kind of historical work? That's another question that oftentimes is underappreciated by the people who are right in the thick and the thin of it. And generally, you don't go back too far when you're engaged in something. And a lot of Unions and organizations are literally fighting for their collective lives right now. The post-pandemic world will produce austerity and other, you know, reductions in employees. And of course, the community groups are facing all those ongoing issues of homelessness and challenges otherwise in their lives. To look back is something that is assistive to them. And so that's something we try to do is assist them in the process. It's only going to help in the trials ahead. Some of our sessions, we deliberately set them up in many cases to have that kind of dialogue go on right in the meeting. For example, last fall, we had a session on childcare because, you know, the federal government made this big commitment and we thought it was a moment to reflect on that. And so there was a historian that talked very interestingly about the background of struggles to get decent childcare for people. And then there were a couple of people who spoke about their struggles in the 70s and 80s and onward. And then there was a woman who's right there working in childcare now talking about the issues she has to face. And the discussion was fascinating. It just moved all over the place. And they were so pleased about it that they made sure that the videotape of it was spread out to many other people who hadn't necessarily heard it that night and so on. So I think we've tried to be sensitive to that dynamic between the past and the present and the future, I guess, in the way we structure the meetings and in the discussions. And if we don't, then someone almost invariably in the audience raises it. So people are very keen to have the relevance of the past. In very simple terms, sometimes it's just the heroism of the past is inspiring. Some other times it's the difficulties that people encountered in the past are sobering, the parallels with the past, or the complete difference, the advantages we have now or the disadvantages we have now. Those kinds of points of comparison are really very, very interesting for people. And I think that's what makes us relevant beyond simply being an antiquarian history society. You have been listening to my interview with Craig Heron, Holly Kirkconnell, and David Kidd, about the Toronto Workers' History Project. To learn more about the project, go to twhp.ca.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.